You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to this uh, BJSM podcast. So my name is Peter Bruckner. I'm a sports physician from Australia and uh, senior associate editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And it's my very great pleasure to uh, be talking today to Professor Tim Noakes, who's the probably needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. He's the Discovery Health Professor of Exercise and Sports Science at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He's known to anyone who runs as uh, the author of the Runner's Bible, The Law of Running. He has a very wide range of, uh, of research interests, ranging from the central governor theory to um, fluids to cricket to well, rugby, lots of important things uh, that Tim's interested in. So, Tim, uh, welcome to BJSM Podcast. Thank you, Peter. Tim, uh, I want to talk today about uh, food, and uh, that's a pretty essential item that, uh, that we all uh, enjoy and, and need. And... Um, for uh, really for the last 30 years or so uh, western society has had uh, what i call the low fat mantra we've all been encouraged that uh, fat is uh, is evil and that we should be eating uh, low fat diets and uh, we've all been recommending particularly for the active person the athlete that low fat high carbohydrate i'm sure you've told many an athlete over the years as as i have you know the whole concept of carbo loading before a marathon and it was carbs 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 because that was your best uh, energy source and yet at the same time you know we've uh, we've had an epidemic of uh, of obesity and type 2 diabetes uh, that more or less parallels that uh, that advice for for low fat so it's a fairly confusing situation but you, uh, in your book, you know, in previous editions of your book, anyway, you've you've been uh, big on recommending, uh, you know, carbohydrates, particularly sort of complex carbohydrates. When when did you start to think, well, uh, maybe this is not uh, completely right? Well, I came about this. Uh, in fact, just after I'd finished writing my last book, Waterlogged, and I went to night to sleep the night I'd finished, and I just submitted it to the publishers. And in the middle of the night, my brain said to me, you must get up tomorrow morning and you must run and you mustn't stop running for the rest of your life. So clearly my brain was telling me it wasn't happy with some part of my, of my body. Anyway, I got up the next morning and ran. It was a terrible run and I realized I was in really bad shape. And so I went home and by chance, complete chance, on the internet, on my emails, I received an advert to, to buy a book which would promise me six, to lose six kilograms weight in six weeks. And I said, but this is bogus. Uh, we know that. And also it said, without hunger. And I said, no, this is not possible. So here I was all ready to get some information on how I could lose weight and run better. And this popped up. And then I noticed that it was written by three really good scientists, uh, Jeff Volek and, and Finney and Westerman. And it's, I suddenly thought, well, they can't be writing stuff that is wrong if, because they're good scientists. So I decided to go down to the nearest bookshop and I bought the book and I brought it home and I opened it and then immediately it said there are 150 studies of low-carbohydrate eating. And so I didn't know that. It was completely out of... We're just not taught that. So I went and I decided, having read the, the articles and the, what they've referred to, I decided, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And so that was two and a half years ago and I've been following that since for the for two and a half years and just had amazing results for myself and then started promoting it amongst other people and have had these incredible reports back from others. So what I realized then was that there was a whole planet or a whole, whole universe that we weren't being taught about in medical school. We, the, the idea that you should avoid fat had become so dominant that all this contrary information was completely hidden. 
And I was absolutely astonished that there was so much information available on low-carbohydrate eating and the benefits. And I, as a practicing physiologist and physician, knew absolutely nothing about it. And that began, that raised the question in my mind, so why is this information being suppressed? Why don't we know about it? Why don't we teach it? And when I started talking about it, I found that, that people were just completely resistant to the idea. So we've been so brainwashed to believe that fat is bad for you that we, don't, we won't accept an alternate view. And it's been really interesting to, to try to, to address that and find out why do people have this fear of fat when the science doesn't support that theory. So tell us what uh, what happens when uh, what you believe happens when you do eat too many carbs and uh, and have this low fat high carbohydrate diet that we've all been recommending for for thirty years. Uh, is that directly leading to obesity? I think it does. I think there's one other fact that we we I've only realised this in the last month or two, and that is that the whole process of producing processed foods is driven by the addictive nature of the foods. And they actively choose to make the food so that you can't not eat it. You will never stop eating the chips or something, for example, the crisps. The design is that you will finish the packet. And they use sugar, principally sugar, to drive the addiction. And now people are starting to realize that the sugar addiction is the same as cocaine or heroin addictions, uses the same pathways, and is equally as powerful. So I think that in my, my take is the following, that... What we are doing, we're exposing young children to increasingly more addictive foods from a young age. And the only ones who can survive those foods are incredibly what we call carbohydrate tolerant. So they do not over-secrete insulin and in response to those diets. And they don't become fat. But they're the minority. The majority of us, and I include myself because I'm highly carbohydrate intolerant, when I eat these addictive foods, I turn the carbohydrate portions into fat. So I think the, the BC diabetes epidemic is its absolutely easy to explain. It's due to the addictive nature of the foods that we eat, and we're living in a culture where that's all the food that you can see. You talk about uh, sugar. I mean, obviously, you know, there's raw sugar that we you know, put in our coffee or tea or, or whatever, but uh, what, where else are we, uh, we having all this sugar? Well, the sugar is present in all processed foods because without that, as soon as you take fat out of the foods, the, they to taste like cardboard. And the, the processed food experts know precisely how much sugar and how much fat they need to add to each product to make it delicious and so that you can't avoid eating it. For example, when you get up in the morning and you have your healthy breakfast of muesli and orange juice and yogurt, you're giving yourself a glucose tolerance test because you're giving yourself at least 70 to 80 grams of carbohydrate, most of it refined, and a lot of sugar present. And in the hospitals, we use a glucose tolerance test to, to test whether you're sick, not to, as nutrition. But what we've done in our society is to make these highly refined carbohydrate foods supposedly nutritious, and they, they simply aren't. They just cause over-secretion of insulin, high glucose concentrations, and ultimately you just store most of that energy as fat. I mean, that breakfast would be considered, you know, by most people over the last 30 years as a very healthy, nutritious uh, breakfast. And yet you're saying that's uh, absolutely the wrong way to start the day. Absolutely. And, and the, the more difficulty you have controlling your weight, you simply cannot eat that food. 
So what I found in my own experience that that I'm now type 2 diabetic and that has developed, I guess, over the last 30 or 40 years as I've eaten this high-carbohydrate diet and promoted it and done all this running. Well, the running didn't protect me from from the diabetes which, which I inherited from my family, which, of course, is the opposite. People say, as long as you're doing lots of exercise, you're never going to get diabetes. But the problem was I was eating too much carbohydrate. And I discovered that my body really can cope with only 25 to 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. So I've learned that for people like myself who are carbohydrate intolerant, there is a certain amount of carbohydrate you can eat. And if you're eating that amount, it doesn't matter how much exercise you do, your weight will be absolutely constant. Conversely, if you eat more than that, you can do all the exercise you like. You're not going to get your weight down. Yet there are some people who obviously could eat a huge amount of, of carbohydrate and, and not uh, and not put on weight. So how how common is this sort of you know carbohydrate intolerance that, uh, that you talk about and uh, and how do we recognise it? That's a great question because my colleagues tell me that I overstate the importance of carbohydrate intolerance. So they say the abnormal presence of abnormal glucose tolerance would be an indication of carbohydrate intolerance, but I think it's more subtle than that. And I think that your, carb- that your glucose tolerance test goes abnormal long after you're becoming carbohydrate intolerant, i.e. I would also call that, that pre-diabetic state. And my view is quite simple that if you are gaining weight on a high-carbohydrate diet and you're finding it difficult to regulate your weight, then your, your diet is wrong and you've got too much carbohydrate. So for me, carbohydrate intolerance occurs as soon as you start putting on weight that would, to me, indicate you're going to benefit from reducing the carbohydrate content in the diet. So I have a very liberal diagnostic uh, criterion for, for carbohydrate intolerance, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe we can't justify it absolutely. But in practical terms, if you are putting on weight, there's only one way you can reduce that weight and get it to be stable, and that is to cut your carbohydrates. In the long term, it's the only way I know that you can regulate your weight. And you mentioned your family history of type 2 diabetes. Uh, I mean, is that uh, a, a common fact? I mean, anyone with a family history, should they be uh, regarded as, as carbohydrate intolerant? I, I think so. I think you're, you're right. You know, that a family history of diabetes puts your risk of diabetes about tenfold greater. It's, it's the best predictor for diabetes, as far as I know. And, and I, what, what my view is that, that we don't do enough testing of blood glucose controls in, in humans. And I think that's what I would focus on. I would check what's happening to your, not just your fasting glucose, but also to your glucose in response to a meal, say two hours postprandial. Post and I think what happens is that progressively gets worse and worse and worse with age. And then eventually you'll notice that your glucose tolerance is abnormal and then eventually your fasting glucose becomes abnormal. But I think there's a window period of 5 or 10 or 15 years where if they would just cut the carbohydrates, they'd be able to normalize their blood glucose. So for someone like myself who I'm pretty much in the categories you've talked about, you know, put on, gradually put on a little bit of weight over middle age to the point where over 20 years you're probably, you know, 10 kilograms over what you're... uh, your best uh, playing weight used to be many years ago, and um, and a family history of uh, of type two diabetes. I mean, uh, you know, I I did something similar to you, and I went uh, went on this uh, um, 
low carb, high fat diet. And within three months lost 10 kilograms and my blood sugars, which were not grossly abnormal, but they were just a little bit above uh, normal, have returned to, to normal. So uh, I guess I'm, you know, in some ways, the sort of typical uh, undiagnosed pre-diabetic, if you like. Absolutely. And, and you know, you, you're very fortunate that, uh, that you could correct it so quickly and with so little, uh, little change. Mm. As I said, in my case, I mean, I have to be incredibly strict and monitoring my glucose all the time to check what I'm eating almost on a meal-by-meal -meal basis. And I've become a bit fanatical because I, I believe that once your glucose is above 6.57, at any time it's damaging your arteries. So if you want to live a long life, in my view, you've got to keep your glucose below 7, below 6.5, maybe below 6 all the time. Mm. And then you don't get that the arteries irritated. So that has been my focus. Our problem is that we're all focused on cholesterol. And, and literally, cholesterol is a relatively poor predictor of your arterial health. A much better predictor is your, your average blood glucose during the day. That really tells you what your artery is going to look like. Right, I your cholesterol is such a poor predictor that it's almost not worth measuring. Mm. I want to come back to cholesterol in a minute, Tim, but I just want to talk a little bit about the, the, the practical uh, realities of a low-carb diet. I mean, you say you're taking 25 to 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, which is a very low. I mean, what, what would you have been taking in, in the old days with your normal sort of... Uh, you know, low-fat yeah. uh, diet, somewhere, what, three, four hundred? I, I, suspect, I suspect when I was carbohydrate loading, it might have been 500 grams a day. Mm -hmm. But I guess I probably lived on 300 or 400 grams of carbohydrate because I actively avoided fat, yep. as I was told, <laughs> on the prudent diet. So mm -hmm. I was one of the first people in South Africa in 1977 to adopt the prudent diet because I was mm -hmm. an early adapter to these things. And it's really interesting that within two or three years, I'd already put on three kilograms, now looking backwards. Yeah. And that's, my running uh, had suffered. That's and in I was spite never of being quite a, as good a... You're a big... I mean, you were, you know, you've run it off, you've run all your life, I know, and you've run yeah. a lot of uh, marathons and comrades and so on, and yet you're still putting on weight. Absolutely. And that's what I've learned. Now, I must tell you a lovely story. Now, the, the great runner of my day was typical Bruce Fordyce, mm. who won the 90-kilometer comrades marathon nine times. And I put him on the high-carbohydrate diet, and I told him, you must take lots of carbohydrates. And we, together, we developed the first goo in the world for use during running, you see. And, and we were convinced that this was the way to go. Well, with time, he also started to put on weight, and he's run 200 marathons. No one in South Africa has run more than him. And he put on weight, and he looked terrible, and he had a protruding abdomen. Of course, he's tiny, so it was not very obvious. And I think he had a fatty liver. And eventually we decided that he should stop eating this and go on the high-fat diet. And within months, his running came right back to him. And he ran the New York City Marathon two years ago and was the second finisher in his age group and broke three hours comfortably for the marathon at age 56. And I was with him last week. And he said, Tim, you know, I wonder what would have happened if I'd eaten a high-fat diet when I was winning the Comrades Marathon. His implication was he thought he would have done even better than he did and that he would have set even better records. That's how he interpreted it, mm. which, of course, is astonishing. Fascinating. Um, so what, I mean, what, do you, what does Tim Noakes eat? I mean, what comprises your 25 to 50 uh, grams of carbohydrate a day? Uh, or what, and what don't you eat, uh, I guess, is, uh, is mm. to the point. Yeah. 
I think let's go. For, it's interesting. I think that when you become, you go low carb. The the beauty is that you know exactly what the rules are, and the rules are very simple. And I think that's what makes it so easy. The reason why other people struggle, I think, on the when you're meant to cut calories and you're allowed to eat carbohydrates, is you still eat the addictive foods, and that's why it's very difficult to sustain it. But the the rules are so strong. There's no sugar, no bread, no potato, no rice, no pasta. And, and none of those easily assimilated carbohydrates, so they all go. And instead, you replace them with meat and fish and eggs and dairy and lots of vegetables, but not the, the carbohydrate-containing vegetables. And I take lots of nuts, and I've mentioned lots of dairy. So those are my, that's my diet. But what's really interesting, and, and I know you will have experienced this, is that your appetite just changes completely. Mm-hmm from this addictive type of eating, which I describe as needing to eat, feed every three hours. That's addictive. And I go quite comfortably for 12 hours without even thinking about food. Mm. So what I aim to do now is to have one big meal a day, which will be made of lots of fat, because that's what I'm focusing on for my condition. Lots of fat, some protein, and lots of vegetables. And that that will be my main meal, and the rest will be just snacking. So I don't recognize any more official eating times. Well, let's let's talk about cholesterol and fats and so on, because obviously the the main critics of the of this low carb, high fat diet point out the fact that well, you know, yes, you might lose a little bit of weight, but uh, the fats are going to kill you, because we've been told for as you said for for twenty thirty years now that cholesterol is the chief culprit in. Uh, in uh, cardiovascular or arteriosclerosis uh, disease, and uh, that you know the whole focus it seems of the medical profession almost the number one focus is to reduce cholesterol, uh, and yet you're advocating that we actually should uh, eat cholesterol and eat a high fat diet. Indeed, and and the the basis for my argument is the that there is in fact no evidence that a high fat or a high saturated fat diet is linked to heart disease. When you strip away all the nonsense and all the marketing and go and look for the hard evidence, there is none. And in fact, there are two meta-analyses reported in the last two years showing that in cross-sectional studies, there's no relationship between high intakes of fat or saturated fat and heart disease rates. And in intervention trials where they actually actively change the diet there's no evidence that reducing fat in the diet increases your or reduces your risk of having a heart attack. On contrast, there is some evidence from those studies that if you have diabetes and you reduce your fat intake, you do worse. And in fact, even if you have heart disease and you reduce your fat intake, you do worse. So the contrary evidence is, is there as well. So when people say that you must cut your fat in the diet to make your heart healthy, there is no scientific basis for that statement in my view. So the evidence is clear to me that if you have people who are carbohydrate intolerant, you feed them a high-carbohydrate diet, they get all the changes that we predict will make it likely for them to have heart disease. If you put them on a high-fat diet, all the changes are positive and suggest that they're going to be at a reduced risk of heart disease. So that's the evidence that I use to justify prescribing high-fat diets to people who are at high risk of developing heart disease. I know it's going to change all their risk factors in a positive way. Why is it that uh, 
the rest of our profession don't uh, don't subscribe to that theory. And at the moment, you know, we're, everyone is very cholesterol oriented. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on on patients to have regular cholesterol tests. If your cholesterol is over a certain amount, then the first thing that you're uh, prescribed is a is a drug, a statin, rather than uh, any dietary advice. Um, it, yet that probably is 95% of of the medical uh, fraternity believe that. Mm. Well, my own experience in, in Cape Town as I've stood up is that I've been challenged by the cardiologists and told I've, I'm killing people. The, the Heart Foundation in South Africa has said the same. The Health Professional Council has said the same. Yet, yet daily I receive letters from people saying, thank you, you saved my life. I've reversed my diabetes, etc., etc., etc. So you've got this incredible difference between what's actually happening on the ground and what the profession says. And what I realize is if I was professor of cardiology or medicine, I absolutely could not get up and say what I'm saying because the first thing that would happen was the pharmaceutical industry would withdraw their support for my department and my department would collapse. The point being that if I wanted to be professor of cardiology, I have to be on the right side of the pharmaceutical industry. Otherwise, I'm not going to get any funding to do research. And so that is the stark reality. And so it's a conflict of interest issue. And what frightens me about medicine is I believe from what I've read now in the last two and a half years that approximately 80% of the chronic ill health that we, are, that we treat has a nutritional basis. And if you don't address the nutritional basis and you just give drugs, you're just palliating the condition. And unfortunately, our profession doesn't want to answer that, doesn't want to find out those questions and answers because it's much easier just to give a drug, keep the patient half alive, and everyone's happy. And when people like myself come along and say, actually, we're doing it all wrong, they're a huge threat to a major, major industry and, a, and a, in a sense, a brainwashed approach to medicine. And that, uh, I mean, the biggest drug, I guess, we're talking about are the, the statins, which are the drugs that uh, lower cholesterol. Um, something like a $20 billion, uh, American dollar a year industry. A massive, massive industry. I mean, is there ever, a, does anyone need statins? Well, let's, find, let's first work out who doesn't. And, and in my view, if you do not have heart disease, it doesn't matter what your cholesterol level is. There's no evidence that it's going to help you in large studies. The, the benefits are so trivial. They are absolutely marginal. And, and what they don't factor in is the risk of complications. And the first complication is diabetes. We know now that about 10% of people on statins develop diabetes. Well, if the benefit is marginal, but you're at a risk, a 10% risk of developing diabetes, I know what I would do. I'd just ignore using the drug. And particularly if you're a woman, there's no evidence that the statins are going to help you. So that's the first point. The second point is that if you do have heart disease, there's a small effect of statins. But in my view, going on the high-fat diet and exercising will do much more for you than the statins ever will. And yet I've heard, you know, supposedly esteemed professors of cardiology recommending that statins should be put in the water supply. It's, uh, it's quite, um, quite incomprehensible. Yeah, particularly if they cause uh, genetic defects in an unborn child. So, yeah. so that one is a real no-starter. But I agree, we hear it all the time. And we have to stand in the way and say, let's be realistic. Let's get people to do look after their health in other ways. And how, how can we go about that, Tim? So... I think the first step is we have to start looking at nutrition as the first and most important determinant of our health. And we have to make sure that people continue to eat fat and protein and not to avoid fat. 
and to cut out all the processed foods. We need to eat real foods. So that would be my focus, and it would start from from the moment the child is born because what's happening now is they're getting exposed to processed foods which are really high in carbohydrate. So within six months of being born, we're exposing our children to high-carbohydrate diets, and the obesity starts right there for those who are carbohydrate intolerant. And in fact, the study published this last week showed that at the end of one year, humans are already stratified into the super-obese, the morbid-obese, the obese, and the normal weight. And that's not genetic. That's because of what they were fed during the first year of life. And again, it can't be due to physical activity because babies don't do much activity in their first year of life. Mm. So the nutritional influence begins right from the moment the child comes off the mother's breast. And we've got to start looking at nutrition right from that moment and giving people real foods as as we ate 100, 200, 300 years ago. Just finally, uh, Tim, I just want to talk about this concept of this diet, this low-carb, high-fat diet in the athlete. Um, as again, we've you know always encouraged athletes, particularly endurance athletes, to have a high-carbohydrate diet. Uh, the marathon is encouraged to load carbohydrates the night before uh, or the days leading up to a marathon. Is it possible to to be an elite athlete um, on a low-carb diet? Oh, absolutely. I think that the longer the distance, the greater the benefits. So we now know of world record holders in events lasting 24 hours or 12 to 24 hours who are completely paleo and eat little carbohydrate. And that's understandable because they're running at a slow and low intensity. The question is, can you do high-intensity exercise on this diet? And from my experience, you can, but you probably, instead of eating 50 grams of carbohydrate, you might need to eat 150, 200 grams. I think what the high-carbohydrate diet does is it selects out those who are carbohydrate-tolerant. Because if you're marginally carbohydrate-intolerant, you simply put on weight, and you might be two or three kilograms too heavy to be world-class. So it, it is axiomatic that the great athletes will be carbohydrate-tolerant. I've dealt with a lot of elite athletes now, and, and I've had some two different responses. The one is that they just benefit dramatically, and the weight loss makes them much better athletes. And I'll admit that these are guys not necessarily running less than, say, 3,000 meters in races. So I can't say that this diet will help you if you're a 1,500-meter runner. In other words, running for three or four minutes flat out or swimming for three or four minutes or cycling for three or four minutes flat out. But once you go beyond half an hour to an hour, then the benefits seem to be that you've you've lost the weight, which is important, and you can maintain that weight. But I think also there are other benefits, and people are reporting back to me that they recover much more quickly on this diet, and they can actually train harder because they can train more days hard. And that's something that's coming through, that people don't get the same muscle soreness after heavy training, and they can recover more quickly. And the explanation, in my view, is because the carbohydrates and induce an inflammatory response in the body. And when you train hard, you get the inflammation, and that, that compounds the problem. And the third interesting story was from an elite triathlete who, who went as low carbohydrate as he could possibly go, and he said his performance was appalling. He just increased the carbohydrates to about 150 grams, and he performed better than he ever had in the past. So what he found was his sweet spot Mm. wasn't 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. It was 150 grams, and it wasn't 500 grams, 
which was what he used to eat. So again, I think we're all different. And there is, in my view, an optimum carbohydrate intake, not a maximum that you should aim for. Mm -hmm. In the past, we said maximize your carbohydrate intake, and I think that's a problem. You need to minimize it. Find the least amount that you can perform your best, but at which you're also your leanest. And that will be the ideal for you. And I don't see why it should ever be more than about 200 grams of carbohydrate a day. That, there's no reason, in my view, that any human athlete, whatever they're competing in, needs more than about 200 grams of carbohydrate a day. What about uh, the, the rugby player or the footballer with a high-intensity, intermittent high-intensity activity over uh, you know, one and a half, two hours? Um, had much experience with uh, looking at those type of athletes? In- Indeed, a lot of feedback from a lot of people saying actually their performance have improved because they've lost weight uh, and uh, they've lost fat, I should say. They've lost the three or four kilograms that, that was preventing them from being really good. So I think in an event that is more prolonged, even though it's high intensity, it's fine. The, the diet seems to work. Again, I emphasize that it's an individual thing. Sure. But, but we obviously both know about rugby and there are a lot of forwards, particularly the props, who are frankly fat. Yeah. And those are the guys I would look to as being carbohydrate intolerant and probably improving if they would increase the protein fat and reduce their carbohydrate content. Tim, uh, I'm getting into trouble here because I've gone over time, but uh, I could chat uh, <laughs> I could chat about this for hours. But uh, yeah. thank you very much for your time, uh, for your inspiration to, to so many of us uh, in this area and so many other areas. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate your thoughts. Thanks, Tim. Thank you so much, Peter. A wonderful interview. Thank you so much. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.